Hi folks, how are you? I don't know about you, but I feel my uh, shoulders have dropped slightly and I'm I'm walking with a bit more purpose at the minute after the news for a lot of us that restrictions are going to be slowly released, which is very, very exciting. The sun has come out, feeling the sun on my face has just been the most wonderful feeling knowing that spring is in the air and around the corner. Um, also, I I don't know if it's the right place to be sharing this with you, but I think that having a, an honest and open conversation about it is really important. I got my first vaccination this week. I've got a heart thing. I'm not going to go into details, but I was surprised as everybody when I got a message, but I got in touch and they were like, it's because you have an existing condition. So you have go and get it done. So I did. Uh, touch wood. That was two days ago. I'm fine. Uh, a little bit of a tender left arm and a couple of sore heads, but apart from that, nothing. So, you know, for me, I'm thinking about it as well as it being something that is hopefully going to protect me. It's also going towards protecting other people. So um, I, if I can, encourage you you all to to make sure you make your appointment and go along and get your vaccination done as and when you get um, notified. Anyway, um, it's been a busy old time of it. I've been doing lots of fantastic things over the last few days and been doing some stuff for the Glasgow Film Festival, which started this week. So they are showing some wonderful films. Um, they showed The Mauritanian last night, which is Kevin MacDonald's new film that we are going to be uh, talking about towards the end of March. So you'll hear Kevin MacDonald talking about that. It's an incredible story, a uh, real story. So I'm um, looking forward to that. But if you are looking for, I don't know, a little bit of a, a, a kind of wonderful curated list of films that you can dive into obviously Glasgow Film Festival is having to uh, work remotely this year uh, we were up there last year chatting to Simon Bird and Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian about their film so this year unfortunately they are having to do it remotely but that has not stopped Alison and her team creating the most extraordinary programme for film fans so please do go and explore the Glasgow Film Festival if you get a, a chance and you want to go and see some wonderful shorts, some films, feature films, some documentaries and some talks as well. So, yeah, get involved is what I would suggest. Um, our latest guest back to the podcast on soundtracking is, well, truly born into cinematic royalty. Writer, director Eduardo Ponti is the son of Sofia Loren and Carlo Ponti, who produced Dr. Zhivago amongst many, many, many other iconic and brilliant films. Eduardo's latest project is this gorgeous, beautiful little film called The Life Ahead, which stars his mother as a woman who forms an unlikely bond with a Senegalese street kid. Now, you can watch this film on Netflix now. It's available up there now. It's called The Life Ahead. And I had the most beautiful experience with this. I just thought the film was gorgeously crafted, um, really interestingly uh, put together with regards to the music as well, which you'll hear Eduardo talk about in just a second. And it's scored by Gabriel Yared, who had to incorporate various musical styles into his work at Eduardo's instructions. This is a man who knew what he wanted. And it's with one of Gabriel's cues that we begin. Momo sketches. <laughs> Thank you. 
Eduardo, how are you? Listen, I'm wonderful and uh, lovely to meet you too. I'm so glad that I get to talk to you about this this gorgeous film that you've made, your latest piece, your latest project, because oh, it's so fantastic. It, it really, really is. Congratulations on on a wonderful story and wonderful performances. Well, thank you. Do you mind talking a little bit about, before we, we talk about music and the film and, and things, but how you came to, this screenplay came originally from you'd, you'd done your own play version of it, or, you know, of, of, of writing a, a play of the, the book. Is that right? No, no, no. It was, oh. uh, it was, uh, it was a book that uh, I fell in love with when I was 16 years old. And it stayed with me ever since. It was something that was planted in my heart at 16. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, I was able to make that dream come true. Well, I can see from the, the bookcase behind you that you, you're a fan of books. There's a lot of books there. It's great. Yes. <laughs> yes. What, what was it about, about the story and the characters, do you think, that really resonated with you, that, that stayed with you? I fell in love with the book because of two main things. First of all, I was so taken with the story of love and friendship between these two characters, you know, that Mm. uh, on the surface, you know, everything separates, you know, race, religion, culture, age. uh, And yet they're just two opposite sides of the same coin. And they realize that as they slowly come together, they slowly start to connect. And what they realize is that they have many more things in common than they don't. They've both been, you know, raised on the street. They both have suffered great loss in their lives and they're both survivors. Uh, and that was the first thing that very much touched me, that, 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 that unlikely uh, bond, but a strong bond nonetheless. And secondly, I love the way that Romain Gary, the author of the book, told the story through the point of view of this uh, 12-year-old immigrant mm. child. And we lived in such a polarizing society. Uh, it is so important to reintroduce empathy to the world. And really, empathy begins when you start seeing life through the eyes of another. And that's what the book did. And that's what I tasked myself to doing uh, in the movie. Particularly the eyes of a child as well, I think, as well, because with that comes such truth, I think. That's right. Truth and presence. <laughs> yeah. Talk about presence. I mean, the, the young gentleman that you have playing Momo, uh, in the film, I- Ibrahima, is that correct? That's right, yes. Wow! He instantly has you in the palm of, your, of his hand for the, entire, for the entire film. And that moment as well where he's by her bedside and he, he's like, are you doing this on purpose? And the tears and arts. Oh, and it's a, a very, very brilliant and moving performance. Was, was, was it easy to cast Momo, to find your Momo? How did you, how did you find him? You know, I thought it was going to be impossible. So I, a part of me felt, well, if we can't find him, I'll just won't do it. You know, part of me was ready. <laughs> wow. No, a part of me was ready not to do the movie. A part of me was ready to say, you know, if we can't find him, we'll invent some excuse and we just won't make the movie. But, but the truth is, he was the first boy I auditioned. No. Yeah. It was meant yeah, to I be. I was first. Now I auditioned after him. I saw another 350 because <laughs> I don't stop with the first one. But, <laughs> but every, every, every additional child I saw, every child led me back to him. Every time I saw somebody was like, you know, he's lovely. 
but, but there isn't, he doesn't have Ibra's heart or he doesn't have Ibra's or he doesn't have, you know, so it was always kind of going back to, to Ibra. So, so in the end, yeah, it was, I mean, it was fate. I could have stopped at the first audition. The hard part to cast was the part of the, which I didn't think was going to be so hard, but in fact, it was the hardest part. And I casted at the very last minute was Lola. Oh, wow. Lola was very difficult to cast. I could not find the right actress in uh, Italy. Uh, just the right energy, you know, I needed somebody that was uh, like a breath of fresh air, that was extremely positive, but also somebody that was an anchor that you could count on. Uh, you know, it was, it's a very complex role, both in its dramatic, uh, you know, uh, d- dramatic key and in its kind of more lighthearted key. So to find, and then they sent me a tape, uh, you know, uh, with Abril, uh, this amazing Spanish actress, Abril Zamora, and we flew her to Rome for me to be able to work with her. And it was, and she was amazing. So that was the hardest role to cast, was the role of Lola. The dance scene with her and, and, and Madame Rosa is just, I love that. It's so warm and there's so much love in that scene. You kind of feel it seep out of the screen. It's extraordinary. Yeah, love, love and trust, love and trust. Because my mother was nervous uh, to dance because, you know, there was a lot of wires on the ground and everything. So she felt, you know, am I going to be safe? Am I going to, you know, because she loves music so much that she was completely going to let go, but she didn't want to trip as she was going to let go. <laughs> and... And Abril was like, uh, you know, Sophia, I will never, ever let anything happen to you. And because of that, she really allowed herself, both my mother and her allowed, her, allowed themselves to really be in that moment together. And that's what you feel. You feel that they're not dancing together, but separately. They're dancing together, together. Was your mom always going to be um, Madame Rosa? Was that, you know, even... I guess when you started thinking about this being a film and this particular part. You know, when you, when you happen to have a mother with that talent then, and, and you happen to be a director, you'd be an idiot not to cast your mother. <laughs> but it was when I read the book, when I started reading that, so when I picked the book back up after, you know, a, a long time I hadn't read it, you know, when I was reading Madame Rosa's lines, I could hear my mother's voice. And so that's a good sign. Did she take much convincing? You know, my mother's a smart actress. So when she sees uh, <laughs> that she's given an opportunity to do such an amazing role, no, not much convincing because the role is so exceptional. You know, it's such a wonderful role that, you know, other, you know, one other actor has already played. Uh, but, you know, it, it was, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tour de force of performance, you know. And so she just jumped at it. And, and it's amazing because, you know, given her, given her legacy, she could have rested under the laurels of that legacy and not being bothered to do something so emotionally and mm-hmm. physically demanding. But it is a testament to who she is as an actress that she wanted to jump into this, you know, with, with every part of her body at the ready to serve the character of the story. And us as, you know, as film fans and, and the audience, we reap the benefits of, of that because it's just, it is glorious to to watch her just shine and do what she does brilliantly in, in this in this role. And it's, you know, and I think it is really interesting as well because experienced actresses, sometimes there aren't enough roles that allow them to really show the, the depths of their ability sometimes, you know, and I think that it's wonderful to see characters like, um, Madame Rosa written and performed with just such 
vigor and strength. But yeah, um, it's so great to watch her. It really, really is. You know, it's so beautiful, you know, that, that, that it's so great that, you know, at 85 years old, wow. this, is something, that this is something that she created, you know. It's such a great example for people that, you know, feel like past 70, they've given everything that they could to life. It's all true. Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, if you wake up one morning and you decide, you know what, I'm 85, but I still have this much to give, give it. Don't let the age get in the way of what you want to give. Because if you don't give it, then it's just you, you censored yourself. Don't yeah. censor yourself because of your age. Yeah. So as I always say to people, it's only Earth years. Music has a, a wonderful multiple roles within the film as well. You know, we talked about that incredible dancing. And I will apologize now for my Scottish bad pronunciation of uh, performers and artists and their song titles. But um, the dancing, uh, the Elsa Suarez, uh, Malandro, um, great, great choice. Did you write the specific cues that we hear as diegetic music within the script? Were those written in the script or had you gone that far to clear those tracks and things in advance? Or was that that one? Uh, that one, yes. That one came very early on. You know, I, I listened to a lot of music then and that one was wonderful. A, because uh, my mother and I both absolutely adore <laughs> Brazilian music. I mean, just adore <laughs> So already I knew that if I was going to pick some Brazilian tune, it would, my mother would find it impossible not to move to it. And, and, and that's what I wanted. Something that <laughs> yeah. she couldn't say no to. Something <laughs> that I turn it on and then things will happen. That's what you want. <laughs> yeah. so, so, and then what I loved about El Suarez is that you hear the life experience in her voice. You feel, you hear the grittiness. You hear that this is a woman who has survived and lived and is still living to tell the story of, of, what, she's, of what she went through in, in her life, you know? And what was really amazing and that I didn't even know when I picked the song. So I picked it because of its spirit. <laughs> After choosing it, I found out that the lyrics is of a woman called Rosa who falls in love in a story of friendship and love, like our movie, with a malandro, which is a street uh, a street kid. 
Wow. Is, it was completely unplanned. Now I lie and I say that it's completely planned. <laughs> the truth is, the truth is it's completely unplanned. But it's one of those things. When it's right, it's right on every level. And when it's wrong, it's wrong on every level. Yeah. And this was right on every level. That's yeah. an amazing story. Yeah. I love that. I know. It's crazy. And I love as well that when we see, you know, Momo dancing down the street before he gets punched, bless him. He's, is he, I think he's cycling, isn't he? Is that by that point? No, he's uh, there not. Are two, there are two moments. Yeah. So there are two yeah. moments. One with Basement Jacks. And yeah. then another one with this other Italian rapper called Gipikinio. Yeah. <laughs> Again, great choices. And that in, that in itself gives us, you know, character insight into, you know, his state of mind. But also, and when we see as well, we see a different Momo in those moments as well. Kind of the music almost kind of, it breaks down a barrier almost in a way to this little boy. Yes, I really wanted the music to be very eclectic. You know, you can tell so much of a person by the kind of music that they listen to, you know, and I wanted him to have a very global, universal taste that it didn't limit itself to Italian music, but that actually he had taste that was kind of cross borders cross-cultural, very much like a millennial, very much like people, you know, kids of today that really don't have such a nationalistic taste of, of only listening to the music of the country where they're born in. But really, because of the internet, they can, they can go not only cross cultures, but also cross generations. Absolutely. You know, they can listen to suddenly Ella Fitzgerald because they stumbled upon Ella Fitzgerald in a TikTok. And so suddenly now Ella Fitzgerald becomes important because of a TikTok. So that's what I wanted to portray in, uh, in Momo. Yeah, I've got two boys and they're seven and 12. And it's really interesting because they don't think of music in genres. It's, that's not how they think of music. It's not important to them what type of music it is. It's about how it makes them feel. And so much of the music they're introduced to is through film, actually, which has been really interesting, you know, kind of whether it's stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy and that amazing 70s vibe, you know, the kind of, all that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's really healthy. Yeah, no, the only genre that they do, they do classify is music that my dad wants <laughs> me to listen to, which is all bad. <laughs> it's all crap. And then if, if there happens to be three tracks that dad asked her to listen to, but then that some TikTok user plays, then it's an amazing track. And she's completely forgotten that this was something that I tried to introduce her to or him because I have a boy and a girl like six months ago. Right. But if, if some other person, a stranger in Kansas plays it on the TikTok, then it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But then you have to marry all these wonderful, and also the, actually, before I get onto your composer, the look of the film is so sensual, you know, in terms of uh, the way you capture the, the sun, you know, and the, the kind of colors of the, of the city. Whether, what were the inspirations for how the film would look and the aesthetic of it and how it would make us feel? Yeah, there were two movies that always inspired me that I that I shared with Angus Hudson, who, by the way, is such a wonderful cinematographer. Uh, really, is not only a great cinematographer, but just a wonderful person to mm. work with. Our two film references were City of God by Amazing. Fernando Mareas and Pichote, a film by Hector Babenco, a Brazilian film of the 70s as well. And what I loved was, especially with City of God, was the 
chromatic vitality of the movie. You know, our movie deals with dark and difficult themes, but that doesn't mean that the movie has to look dark and difficult. I wanted the movie to reflect the vitality mm. and the desire to live of the characters. I wanted the movie to reflect the party that they have inside, which is, uh, trans which is interpreted by their desire to live, to survive, and go beyond surviving. And that's kind of even reflected, I, I kind of noticed in things like... Um... Like Rosa's, like a kaftan, you know, that kind of really, the red and it's kind of, yeah, it just says so much about it, all those kind of little details as as well. Yeah, with, there, there's not, you know, even if, you know, even, even though you're dealing with people whose lives are difficult, you know, whose social context is difficult, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't want to live in a way that celebrates who they are and that celebrates life. And these people, no matter how difficult their life is, celebrate life. How did you come to make your choice of composer for the film? Was that an easy thing to, to work? Because Gabriel has, uh, has worked on some incredible films. Um, and weird, I was watching Talented Mr. Ripley just um, last week for, for another project. And that's just a stunning score and stunning film as well. And, you know, he worked quite a lot with, with Anthony Minghella. But what was, your, what was the journey towards, towards that choice and working with him? I needed... First of all, as a fan, I wanted to work with Gabriel Yarrett. And secondly, I needed a composer that was two things, extremely versatile and who owned the different genres of music that I felt the movie needed. But at the same time, somebody that had this uncanny talent to create simple yet beautiful melodies because I'm one of those audience members that I want to be able to hum the theme of the movie when I walk out of the movie theater. Or in this case, because it's Netflix, walk to the kitchen. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I want to be able to, to hum it and to sing it, you know, because in a way, the themes of the movie are the soul of the movie you know, are what, what you carry of the movie along with the images, along with those emotions that the characters made you feel, then everything is connected and, and kind of tied by music.
you know,、mm -hmm. and I knew that there would be a very specific arc of the music in the movie that would start with very current trap beat things to really be into Momo's world,、mm -hmm. and slowly, as Madame Rosa enters Momo's heart, seeps into his consciousness and to his heart, then her music starts to take hold of his music, and so then you have an orchestral. Theme and something that starts to seep into him, and then the orchestra starts to take over, and it becomes more, much more of an acoustic, much more of an orchestral feel by the end, which becomes the music of their love, essentially. And so、wow. to create that, I mean,、yeah. if you hear, if you just ha have fun, and you hear the not the very first cue of the movie because that's、uh, a kind of a precursor of the end. But if you、yeah. go from when he seals steals the candlesticks of that very first cue to the very last cue, I mean, it feels like two different movies. You slowly, bit by bit, create that musical development, and he was so skilled at that because he's a scholar. He's a musical scholar. He knows all about the history of music, the history of instruments. He has this, you know, the library I have, the, the, the books I have behind me. He has them in his head. So, so he doesn't need a library behind. He has no books because they're all in his head. But so, so he's so he's so scholarly that he can access these different genres and he owns them, which is also wonderful, right? Yeah.、Uh, and of course, his his melodies are are absolutely amazing.
But you mentioned that kind of that that little sort of almost like musical tease that you give us to where the this where the score goes yeah. at the very start of the film, and it's only about ten seconds of it, but it's so yeah. it's so gorgeous, and it does hook you immediately as well. It's so clever because yeah. you're you're really there. And then there was a one of the other cues that I wrote down whilst where they um, they witness the arrests. And yeah. she goes back into to yeah. the building, and he really tenderly follows her to yeah. you know her kind of her secret her yes. secret place really. And that cue was so brilliant. I loved that piece of music so much. And it's and it's and it's beautiful because there is, which is interesting. He creates dissonance that becomes harmonic. There are things that when if you when he puts them together, they sound a bit dissonant and yet the way that he marries tones it becomes extremely harmonic and extremely musical Another thing about Gabriel, which really helps, he really believes in what he does. And that's important because he allows himself to be bold and then he knows how to sell it to the director who might be insecure. You know, are you sure? Because, you know, no, no, no. And so he's so secure of what he's doing and at the same time, extremely flexible. Uh, you know, he's not one of those, you know, that says, okay, here are my tracks. Thank you very much. I'll see you at the recording session. I mean, we worked on these cues for months, on the demos for, for, for months. Wow. And it was very, very, it was very, very open. It was very, and I'm a pain. I am a pain. <laughs> no, no, I'm a, I'm a pain because I think I know music. So this is the worst for a composer. When you're directing- Well, your brother's a conductor, your yeah. father, you know, has some yeah, of the most amazing even, music in his yeah, films. Yeah, it's even worse. It's even worse. <laughs> I, I think I know enough to really do also a little bit his job, which is a disaster for the composer. But he was there. He was patient with me. He was flexible. And it was a joy to work with him.
I mean, you, you must have had an amazing kind of landscape of of score and film music around you growing up. Were you was 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 that part of of growing up that you were kind of privy to that world? You know, in terms of of what your what your dad had and was creating, sort of thing. You know, it's it's so funny about my dad uh, having produced movies with beautiful music because he was the most unmusical person in the world, and yet he had an amazing talent at creating films with very beautiful, like for example, the Lara Steam and Doctor Zhivago. Doctor Zhivago, yeah. was a piece of music that was originally it was of course the, the score was composed by Maurice Jarre but the but the um, the source of Lara Steam was an old Russian folkloric uh, song and my father fought very hard to have Maurice Jarre compose his own theme of course mm-hmm. based on that and, and so, in a way, he had this very uncanny sense of music. And yet, if you asked him to sing a thing, he couldn't even sing. He would be out of tune at Hap with Happy Birthday. Hap, he's already out of tune. <laughs> so, so, so it's amazing that uh, he was. But yeah, so, so he's, so my father, then my brother, of course, is a conductor. And my, my, my grandmother on my mother's side was a contrapianist. It's in the genes there. It's there. It's in, it's in the genes somewhere, definitely. But that's quite interesting because when I speak to a lot of directors, they talk about the fact that I don't know anything about music. I try and communicate to these amazing musicians and composers about what I want, but I can only speak to them through the language of emotion. And that's, you know, that's kind of what you're trying to convey is you're trying to get to the soul of these characters or the soul of the story. So it's it's really interesting because the two converge so brilliantly. Uh, sometimes I go as far as changing some notes. <laughs> Occasionally someone will let you. <laughs> but they allow me, which is crazy. <laughs> you know. They allow me out of out of a sense of resignation. Because they think, you know what, if I don't change this one note, he'll never live it down. He's gonna ask me. So just you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just change that one note. And then I'm happy. And it makes no difference really to the cue. But uh, but yeah. Before we run out of time, can we talk about the um, the the end piece of music by uh, Laura Pausini? Yeah, and Diane Warren. Yeah, 
was that an existing piece of music or was it something that they were they wrote specially for the film? Yeah, so I got a cold call from Diane Warren one day. I was in Los Angeles. She had read the, the script. I'm not sure who gave her the script, but whoever it is, I'm very grateful. And uh, she read the script and she said, uh, I want to compose a song for your film. And, you know, Diane Warren, you know, 11 time Oscar nominated uh, yeah. song. I mean, the songstress, you know, she is, you know, she is the urban Berlin of today. You know, she's 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 inarguably the, the greatest film female song composer of all time, really. And so and so I was like, absolutely, it would be an honor. So once the movie was uh, finished, she saw the film and she showed up at my doorstep in Los Angeles with a guitar and a broken hand. <laughs> oh my God. And she sang me the song with her guitar and her broken hand in my living room. And, you know, she's incredible. She, wow. She's, you know, and, and so she wrote this beautiful song in English. And I felt it was very important for the film, uh, for the song to be, of course, in Italian, because I wanted those very last words to be, the whole movie is told through the point of view of Momo through mm -hmm. a voiceover of his. Yeah. And I wanted the very last song to be, in a way, Madame Rosa's voiceover. The words that she leaves behind in Momo's heart for Momo to pave his way for his life ahead. So the lyrics ha uh, were translated. So then we got into contact with Laura Pausini, who's a, not a wonderful, wonderful singer. And she, along with her writing partner, Nicolò, readapted, reworked the lyrics, rewrote essentially the lyrics with that in mind, but always in keeping with the yeah. spirit of what Diane Warren had uh, written and it was and it, and it was great you know she you know it, it was also quite a challenge because it was important to tell Laura that she is now in the movie she you know it's not just a song in the end credits you know that she is she is essentially at least the first stanza of the song is really a voiceover so the way that she sings it the way that she expresses that you know uh, it has to be almost spoken but but sang at the same time and then once the movie the, the song kicks in then she can give it everything she she has but to start in a very delicate way in a very fragile way in a way she's whispering this to him and she did a wonderful wonderful job we did uh, many takes <laughs> but uh, but in the end, you know, she really captured it so wonderfully. You know, it was it was really a wonderful experience to work both with Diane and, of course, with uh, Laura. Great. Amazing. Um, such wonderful stories to accompany this beautiful film that you've made, Eduardo. It's just, yeah, you can tell how important this this project has, has been to you. And I'm so glad that you... I'm so glad that you revisited that book and, and has made this film because it's it's a, a beautiful gift to us all as film fans. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, thank you so much. I'm off to go and listen to Elsa Suarez and dance around the kitchen now. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. for sure. Um, yes. Thank you so much. It's great to chat to you and I look forward to what's next as well, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Eduardo. Thank you. I had a lovely time. Thank you so much. See you. Quando tu finisci le parole Sto qui, sto qui, forse a te ne servono due sole, sto qui, sto qui. 
Quando impari a sopravvivere e accetti l'impossibile, nessuno ci crede, io sì. From the soundtrack to The Life Ahead, that's IOC by Dan Warren and Laura Pausini. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Eduardo Ponte. My huge thanks to Eduardo for taking the time to talk to us. I had the most wonderful time chatting to him. It was at the end of one of those days where it was a bit of a slog and I spent 40 minutes on a Zoom chat with him and he's one of those individuals that's kind of smiling almost behind his face. He just exudes this this wonderful energy. So I can't thank him enough for lifting my spirits and, and just being a wonderful, wonderful guest. The Life Ahead is available to watch now on Netflix and, as I said, genuinely affecting piece of storytelling. Please go and watch it. We'll put up a Spotify playlist for this show and you can find a link for that at edithbowman.com and that's also the place that you can catch up with every single episode of the podcast. That's edithbowman.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do subscribe to our YouTube channel too where you'll find, uh, I put together a little show featuring the great and the good from the worlds of film, television and music. It's like a companion piece to this podcast and our latest episode, you can see Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and Pete Doctor from Pixar talking about working together and also Atticus and Trent talking about working with David Fincher on Mank and a few other things. And make sure you join us next time for Soundtracking, where we dive deep into the world of film and music and talk about that gorgeous relationship that they have. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.